As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When can I go and meet with you, God? My tears have been my food day and night, while men say to me all day long, Where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I used to go with a multitude, leading the procession to the house of God, with shouts of joy and thanksgiving among the festive throng. Where are you, downcast, O my soul? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Saviour and my God. My soul is downcast within me. Therefore I will remember you from the land of Jordan, the heights of Hermon, from Mount Mizar. Deep calls to deep in the roar of your waterfalls. All your waves and breakers have swept over me. By the day the Lord directs his love, at night his song is with me a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why must I go about mourning, oppressed by the enemy? My bones suffer mortal agony as my foes taunt me, saying to me all day long, where is your God? Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Saviour and my God. without you. I'm desperate to be found. I'm desperate for you. For you to be a I'm desperate for you. I need you like the athlete needs air. I need you like life needs to be fair. Like a mother needs to care. I'd brave the worst to quench this thirst. But where do I go to get to know you? All I've eaten is tears. Then I heard these words. Where's God? Where's he gone? Is he dead? What's wrong? Is it really so absurd? Has it never occurred to you it could be true that God's through? But memories freeze the lie right there. Thoughts dredged up by my churning soul. I'm where? At God's HQ in a leading role. How we'd sing full blast. How the bells would ring. So why so sullen, soul? Why so moody, me? Why so down, so depressed? So incapable of breaking free? Don't give up. Let God lift your life up. Stack that weight on God, all of it, complete. See if he can't juggle it, smuggle it away at last, and set you back on Celebration Street.
When I was a little boy, my mum and dad didn't go to church, uh, but they sent me to Sunday school. Miss Williams called to get me when I was four years old, and recently that church had its 100th anniversary, and they invited me to preach at it. And suddenly they're showing photographs of old Sunday school parties, flashing them up on the wall, and suddenly there I am, I'm seven years old. And as I leave, somebody pulls my coat. And I turn, and she says, do you remember me? It's Miss Williams. She looked a hundred years old when she came to get me when I was four. I only just stopped myself saying, you're still alive. And we didn't have a very posh home. We didn't have fancy things like inside toilets or running hot water. And the big deal was when my Sunday school teacher used to invite me for tea. My mother would begin preparing for that a month ahead. And as the days came nearer, she would try to put her son to the equivalent of a Swiss finishing school. And finally, four o'clock on a Sunday afternoon would come, and she'd damp down my hair again and give me one of my father's handkerchiefs. And as I walked down the road towards the Sunday school teacher's home, she would yell some last piece of advice like, uh, if there's only one sandwich on the plate, leave it, and, and that kind of stuff. And ladies and gentlemen, as I look out of you now and look at you all, I know very few of you, but you are all so different. And on this last night of spring harvest, you all go back to very different circumstances. Some of you feel very close to God right now and some far away. Some of you feel you could reach out and touch Him and in other of your hearts, faith is dying. Some of you are single and life is hard for you. Some of you are married and your marriages are tough. Some of you are going through the trauma of divorce. Some of you feel very much in love. Others feel that love is far away. And I almost feel, and I'll be honest with you, I do, as if you were in my front room at home. And rather, as my mother would shout to me, I would want to shout some things to you as you go home uh, from spring harvest. And if none of these things mean anything to you now, put them in the bank for tomorrow. Because I'll tell you, these psalms are written that we might know how to live in a difficult and strange and perplexing world. This psalm is a masculine, it's a Hebrew word for teaching. What's it trying to teach us? It teaches holding on to God when He doesn't seem to make sense. Perhaps in another word, to pray, Your kingdom come, but in a broken world where there is little evidence of that kingdom coming. And the key to it is in the refrain. Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God. I will yet praise Him, my Savior and my God. Now you'll see it was one of the Psalms of the sons of Korah. They were a generation of music makers and they passed on their skill and right from generation to generation. They signed this one off. It's a bit like uh, Lennon and McCartney. But this is almost certainly a psalm of David. And some scholars believe it is when his son Absalom rebelled against him and suddenly David himself is separated from his home, from the temple, and his own son is breaking his heart. I thank God for all my heart, with all my heart for psalms like this, that say to us, follow God through heartache, confusion, bewilderment. You and I live in a twilight world. It is the world that our Father created, but it is not the world that He wanted to be. 
You and I were created to know fellowship with God, with each other, to care for the environment. His kingdom was to be here and now, and we yearn for that world. Ladies and gentlemen, we are speaking all this stuff against the backdrop of my friend Rob Lacey apparently dying. To watch that program, the Lacey Theatre Company, on the first night, Rob almost seemed to be part of it. And that whole backdrop of suffering and what's it all about. We yearn for another world. Even those who do not believe yearn for that world. I hear people who are atheists say of someone who has died too young, he deserved better. They believe it's all come about by chance. That the body in the coffin is some rag bag of, of atoms just flung together from the Big Bang. They believe there is no design behind it, yet they say he deserved better. It is as if they cannot help themselves. Deserve better from whom? Who was there to judge? Who was there to impress? Who was there to decide? And at that moment, they are joined unwittingly to believer, crying at the graveside. As both the believer and the atheist seem to cry out, this is not how it was meant to be. We were not meant to be crying at the gravesides of men and women too young to die. Unless you and I understand that dilemma of living in a broken world, we will never understand God's purposes. We will live in disappointment with God and with ourselves. When life is good, we'll praise. The psalmist says, I remember going up to the temple. I remember going with the multitude. When life is good, it's easy to praise. But that is never the test. In Care for the Family, we run a special department for children uh, with special needs. These is to help their parents bring them up. These kids are uh, challenged mentally, emotionally. They might be on drugs. They may have eating disorders. A couple of years ago, some of our team took 60 parents away for a weekend. Friday night, Saturday, Sunday, and Diane and I joined them on the Saturday night. They want me to bring a message to them. And I slip in at the back of the room. There are about 60 of them, and they've got their backs to me, and they're singing a hymn. I've got a message in my pocket. I'm ready to speak it. But as we sing, suddenly the woman in front of me sinks to the floor. She cries uncontrollably and rushes from the room. I go out after her. I say, what is wrong? Can I help you? She says, you're Rob, aren't you? Yes. What can I do for you? Oh, she said, my son was a drug addict. And the dealers caught him and they set him on fire. She said he was meant to give evidence in court, but I begged him not to. He was in a safe house over the weekend. And when he didn't turn up on the Monday morning, the police came to me to ask her where he was. I went looking for him. And Rob, I found him dead in a squat. The other kids there said two men were seen running from the squat. And the police are trying to work out whether my boy was murdered, whether he overdosed purposely, or whether it was an accident. And I comfort her and I pray with her. And, and then I go back in the room and I'm sat in the front row. And I'm waiting to speak and a young woman is speaking. She's about 27 years old. She says, my husband and I desperately wanted children. And then I became pregnant. But before my little girl was born, my husband contracted cancer and he died. When my little girl was born, she had Down's syndrome. She's six years old now. And she said, the other day I'm in the garden at home and a woman from church is there with me who's not very well and I'm praying for her. And suddenly, 
my little girl comes into the garden and she puts one hand on my friend's arm and the other hand in the air and she begins praying for my friend. And ladies and gentlemen, I am sat there with a message in my pocket and I think, what on earth can I say to these people? And then God gives me a revelation. Never claimed it before or since. And this is what I say. Some of you have disabled children, don't you? They nod. And you wish they were well, don't you? They nod again. But you love them anyway, don't you? They nod again. And I think they thought I was about to say, that's how God loves you. He loves you anyway. But I said, that's how you love God. You don't love God because everything in the garden's fine. You don't love God because everything's rosy. I hear Christians say, God is so good. He's blessed me. He's blessed my home. He's blessed my church. That's good. Rejoice in it. But that is never the test. I said, you love God against the odds, in the darkness. And although your faith and love may at times to you seem weak and poor, do you see how precious it is to Him? Because you love Him anyway. They start crying. I'm crying. We're all crying. And ladies and gentlemen, that's the test. Not just when we're going along and life is fine, when we say with an old prophet, Though the fig tree shall not blossom. I want the fig tree to blossom. And though there are no fruit on the vine, though the produce of the olive fail, and there be no sheep in the stall, yet will I hope in God. Perhaps we even say with Job, perhaps even through gritted teeth, well, even if he slay me, yet will I trust in him. It's very hard. I think of a group now praying for a man who seems to be dying. Do these people have faith? I'll tell you, these people have incredible faith. Time and time again, they reach out to God in faith. But now they are beginning to say, have we missed anything? Is there something we haven't claimed? I think of a woman who is practically dying of a broken heart. Her son has broken her heart. Is this a good mother? She is a wonderful mother. If you could be a mother like her, pick it, choose it, be like her. This is a wonderful mother. As she prayed for her son, hours and hours and hours, but her son is breaking her heart. And these people, like the psalmist, seem to cry out to God, Where are you? Show yourself. Turn up. Do something. It's not even a selfish prayer. Sometimes they're saying, Lord, do it for your sake. For your name's sake, do something. And this psalm begins with this incredible image of the deer panting after the water brooks. I read just over a week ago of a man who, when he was a child, was brought up near the Buffalo River in America. He said, I come out of my farm door one day and dad's in the fields and I hear what I think are hounds. But then I think we don't have hounds. And I realize they're wolves. And then suddenly the deer breaks out of the wood with the wolves at its heels. And this animal is almost dead, but it is coming towards me, running right towards me. And then I realize it is not running to me, for it's as scared of me as the wolves. It is running to the river behind me, trying to get to the Buffalo River. Because it knows if it can reach that river, it will be safe. Its aching body will know peace for a moment. It can slake its thirst in that river. It's going for the river. And just before it reaches me, it stumbles and the wolves are on it. That's what the psalmist is saying. My heart pants after the water brooks. I need you, 
Be with me. Don't let other people say, where is your God? And almost at the time when he seems to despair, the psalmist seems to remember an experience he had when he was in the northern part of Israel. Near Mount Hermon, the head of the Jordan River, on a little peak called Mount Mizar, which means small mountain. He was listening to the waterfalls. And he says they seemed to be calling to each other. Deep seemed to be calling to deep. The silent voices of nature. The moon calls to the deep in the seas, raising the tides. The sun and rain call to the deep in the seas, stirring new life in the spring. Vast continents call to the deep in birds and call them to warmer climates. And it reminded him as he listened to the waterfalls, how deep calls to deep, heaven to the hearts and spirits of men and women. Somebody once asked Baroness Cox to talk of the best and worst times of her life. She spoke of the worst in a heartbeat. She said, I arrived at a Dinka village just after the Sudanese government-backed soldiers had left laden with human loot. She said the stench of death was overpowering. More than a hundred corpses lay where they had been savagely butchered. Men, women, and children, even cattle, had been cut down or herded into captivity to be carried north as slaves. Straw huts were ablaze, crops raised, devastation and death were everywhere. The smell of it was in the air. And worst of all, she said, was the sure knowledge that the militia with their Klashnikovs were coming back. And her best moment? She said, oh, it was during the same incident. When the militia had gone, and with the results of their cruelty all around, husbands slain, children taken into slavery, women raped, homes raised to the ground, the few women still alive, pulling themselves together, their first act was to make tiny crosses out of sticks lying on the ground. Tiny crosses and push them into the earth. And then Baroness Cox said this, they were not fashioning memorials. These were not crosses on graves. These were symbols. The little crosses were pressed into the earth at the moment when their bodies reeled and their hearts bled as acts of faith. They were followers of Jesus of Nazareth. They served a God whom they believed knew pain as they now knew pain. Blinded by pain, ravaged by grief, horribly aware that the world would neither know nor care about their plight. They staked their lives on the conviction that there was one who knew and cared. They were not alone. As they pressed the crosses in, deep, cold to deep. Some years ago, Steve Chalk uh, was asked uh, by GMTV to go to Dunblane where the children had been shot in the school. He told me about it. He said it was a very cold night. It was very wintry. And Lorraine Kelly and he were uh, commenting on the disaster. And he said we'd do a bit the camera, then we'd rush back into the car where the engine was running to get warm. And he said it's about 7 o'clock at night and I'm sat in the front and Lorraine's next to me. There's a cameraman in the back seat. And a church leader is on the radio. 
And he's given an explanation of why God allows suffering. And it's articulate and it's theologically correct, but there's no heart in it. And he said, the cameraman leans over me, turns the radio off and says, crap. And just then, we're called outside, the light on the camera goes red, and we're in front of millions of people. And Lorraine Kelly says, well, Steve, people are blaming God for this event. What do you say? And I think he gave a brilliant answer. I've often thought about it. Steve said this, that's okay. They can blame God. God's shoulders are big enough to bear it. Those shoulders have borne so much. Why have you forgotten me, says the psalmist. Here's some real crying out to God. And yet all the way through this psalm, there is this refrain of hope. You know what the Bible says? The whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. We wait eagerly for the redemption of our bodies. And ladies and gentlemen, our greatest hope, and that's implicit in the psalm, our greatest hope, the ultimate hope, is the vanquishing of death. John Dunn put it like this. He dared to look death in the face and shout out, Death, you will die. Even as we grieve, even as we grieve you tonight, we need to know within the biblical family, pain, suffering and death are abnormal, an alien intrusion rather than something natural. And always we are faced with the twin biblical doctrines of creation and the fall. The world was and is good, but it is fallen. And therefore the biblical focus is always bifocal. Sometimes we see what is and sometimes we get a glimpse of what will be. C.S. Lewis put it like this. We are at once world affirming and world denying. We are at once world affirming and world denying. Because of its view of creation, the Christian faith is sometimes like humanism. We openly affirm the world. We build schools, we build hospitals, we encourage the arts. But at the same time, because of its view of the fall, we are more like Buddhism and Hinduism, though for different reasons. We deny the world. We say we must not only feast, we must have denial. We must celebrate as well as grieve. We'd only talk about earth, we reach forward to that other world, and always you and I are riding these two horses. We are affirming the world and denying the world. We are looking at it and also looking to another world. And sometimes we go overboard on one or the other. Sometimes we become too worldly, sometimes too otherworldly. But always there must be this focus. This has colossal implications for the way we view suffering. If suffering is a result of the fall rather than creation, then pain and suffering and death are abnormal. They are alien. And as such, they are incriminating evidence of what almost all human beings feel in the face of evil. Even unbelievers, it should be other than this. There's something wrong. This is not right. I think of a father who lost his boy in a cyclone accident, church leader. And those who watched him at the funeral said he was incredible. He, he seemed together. He, he thanked God in some ways for the difficulty. He thanked God for his son's life. He seemed a man at peace. 
And the friend at the back said, oh, I hope it lasts. But some months later, he went to see a wise old Christian. And some other leaders were in the room and they left to let them talk. But the walls were paper thin. And they could hear this leader ranting and raving with bile and bitterness towards God. And they waited to hear what the older Christian would say. And what he said was this, you have every right to be angry. And he read to another occasion of Jesus at the tomb of Lazarus. You know the Greek word used there is the word when horses go into battle and they rear up on their hind legs and they snort in anger. That's what Jesus did at the tomb of the man he loved. He was going to do something about that, but first he was angry at what sin had done to his father's world. C.S. Lewis said, of all men, we hope most of death, yet nothing will reconcile us to it. It is unnatural. We don't have to take it on the chin. We don't have to say this is okay, this is fine. We have every right to be angry. It was not meant to be this way. I have a date book. Every date has a square and a date in it. And every day of my life, I'm pulled from one square to another. October 10 pulls me out of October 9 and into its square. And October 11 pulls me into its square. And that's how I go through my life. Pulled from one box to another. Ladies and gentlemen, there is a day for me that has no doors. It's the day I'm going to die. Could be this day. The big question of the universe is this. Does that box have no doors because it is a coffin and death is the end? Or does it have no doors because it has no walls and death is a beginning? Christian hope is fixed on that last square. All my hope is fixed on that last square. My hope is fixed that then life will be right. Not just in the legal sense, but in every other way. Loyalty, fidelity, the Bible calls it shalom. Peace in a new world, charged with joy, health and love. God knows the things that break our hearts. Suffering is not a surprise to Him. It's not a surprise to Him that we ask why. And He says, then I will wipe away every tear from your eye. And then death will be no more. I know what death does to you. When you see a child, when you see a young man, when you see a loved one die, death will be no more. And neither will there be any more mourning, nor crying, nor pain. You know, these days we hear so much about end times and all that kind of thing. And when I was a kid, those who talked about those days seemed to make it seem very unattractive. I don't know why. Tony Campolo said they... They told you when you were kids that you'd stand before God and he'd show you a video of your whole life and your mother would be there. <laughs> How many of you want to go to heaven? Put your hands down. How many of you'd like to go today? Not many. What if I told you this? What if I told you that on that day you will see this world set straight? No common colds, 
no cancers, no second-class citizens, no child sex slaves, no hungry eyes, no swollen bellies. We would be at peace with each other, especially ourselves. Our nationalist swords smithied into international plows. We would have peace in that day. Now how many would like to go today? Yes, we want, we want that world. We reach for that world. In our very spirits, deep calls out to deep to that world. The Bible talks about hope. Paul calls it a hope that never disappoints. That's why the writer of Hebrews calls it a sure and steadfast anchor for the soul. Ladies and gentlemen, Diane often says to me, Rob, this life is too hard for some people. We must live in the light of that other world. This is not pie in the sky when you die. This is holding both worlds in tandem. Living with our eyes on that other world. I will create new heavens and a new earth. Lions lying down with lambs. The poor given justice. The weak raised to strength. People enjoying the shalom of God. A young teenage Jewish girl. Stunned by her pregnancy was inspired to sing of a day when he would fill the hungry with good things and send the rich away empty. While her baby was born in poverty, the angels sang. We almost sang part of it tonight, didn't we? Peace on earth, goodwill to men. And as that baby grew, he gave hints all the time of that other world. A village prostitute with her life turned around. A lame man jumping on two feet. A blind man who could see. People chained all their lives to guilt. Set free. And as he walked the earth, he threatened those whose only hope was in this world. And they pinned him to a piece of wood with nails. And they said, now it's done. Now the music is over. Now it's all finished. But God raised him from the dead. And in doing so, put flesh and blood on hope. I heard a lovely story some time ago of a little boy whose parents owned one of the first telephones in America. He said, we lived on the plains and it was an incredible little thing. It was wooden. And my mum would wind it up and she would say, information please. And a voice would say, this is information. And he said, information please would tell them the time or the weather or get them a number. He said, one day I'm about nine years old and my mum and dad are out and I bang my thumb with a hammer. And there's no point crying because there's nobody in. <laughs> and then I remember the telephone. And I get a little stool and I stand on it and I wind it up and I say, information please. And a voice says, this is information. And I say, I bang my thumb. And information please said, is your mummy in? No. Is your daddy in? No. Is it bleeding? No. Could you get to the ice box? Yes. Hold some ice against it. He said it worked. He said, after that, I rang information please for anything. <laughs> information please help me with my geography homework. She told me where Philadelphia was. Information please taught me to spell disappear. And when my pet canary died, I cried and said, Why would God make anything that can sing so beautifully and let it die? Information, please, said Paul, you must always remember there are other worlds to sing in.
And then he said, my parents moved to New York City, and I was out of an area. And anyway, I didn't believe information police could live in this new plastic phone. And I never rang her again until I was 24 years old. And I flew back into my old town, and I'm in an airport lounge just on the edge of the city, and I look at the phone and think, I wonder. And I dial, and I say, information, please. And a voice says, this is information. And I say, could you teach me to spell disappear? And she said, I expect that thumb is better by now. <laughs> and I say, have you any idea what you meant to me? She said, have you any idea what you meant to me? We couldn't have kids of our own. I used to look forward to you ringing me. Now, you remember, I'm very old. I'm not very well. I only come in a couple of hours a day, but you ring me. Remember, my name's Mary. And he said, I would ring her, and we would talk together. And one day, I rang and I said, information, please. And a different voice said, this is information. And I said, could I speak to Mary? And she said, oh, I'm sorry. Mary died a couple of days ago. She was very old. She only came in a couple of hours a day. Oh, I'm sorry to have troubled you. No, wait. Is your name Paul? Why, yes, it is. Well, Paul, Mary said, if you happen to ring, we must be sure to give you this message. Paul, you must always remember there were other worlds to sing in. And ladies and gentlemen, there are other worlds to sing in. We are sad at the moment, and we are broken, but there are other worlds. Isaac Perlman, that incredible violinist, had polio from age of 12. And here was the deal when Perlman played. The audience would be sat. The orchestra would be ready. The conductor would be ready. And then Perlman would come on stage dragging his leg behind him. He would take the seat of lead violinist. And then he'd take the great iron brace off his knee so he could straighten his leg to play lead violin. And on this evening in the auditorium, they'd come really to hear Perlman. At the end of the piece was a six-minute practically solo for lead violin. Thirty seconds into the solo, they hear a bang that they say you could hear at the back of the auditorium. And one of Perlman's four strings broke. The conductor dropped his baton in surprise. The orchestra stopped playing. And then Perlman waved them to carry on and transposing the notes from four strings to three. He played brilliantly that piece. When he finished, he sank, his shoulders were down, there was sweat pouring from his brow. And for about ten seconds, apparently the audience did nothing. There was silence. And then they went crazy. They stood, they were on the seats, and the orchestra stood. They were banging their instruments. And Perlman asked them to stop and asked for a microphone. And when they gave him the mic, he shouted into the darkness of the auditorium the same thing twice. All my life, it has been my mission to make music from what remains. All my life, it has been my mission to make music from what remains. And ladies and gentlemen, you and I are called to that. This psalm struggles with it. We are believing in the sovereignty of God. All our lives, the youngest of them are incredibly short. We are called to make music from what remains. Until finally we stand and really make music. I saw Rob Lacey the day before I came to Spring Harvest. And then I left his room, he said to me, it's in God's hands. 
either way. May God bless you.